0: This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts Jason Diaz and Tim Manichi.
1: Jay, this week we are back with a sophomore slump revisited a controversial episode jay it is it is this is one where i posted the preview on facebook and a literal shitstorm descended upon us of people decrying or or demanding to know why this album was considered a sophomore slump and i think we need to Maybe define a little bit better what we mean by a sophomore slump.
2: Yeah, I don't know. You picked it. What what are you doing here?
1: And and I'm going to tell you that for 1997, it was actually a little bit difficult to find sophomore albums that fit our criteria. Mm. There aren't a lot. There aren't actually a lot of bands that... A lot of bands were already three albums deep by this point in 1997. So we didn't have... You know, there were some other bands. I mean, I guess we could have done like, you know, a Sublime record or something. I don't know. That's not a bad, that's a bad example. They didn't have a second album. Did they? I, yes. No idea. Did, okay. I'm not going to do a Sublime album. That's just, that's, that's uh, neither here nor there. This was one where I was doing it purely based on my own experience at the time of being a huge Brook Assault fan. So that's why I picked Eight Arms to Hold You, because it was a sophomore album from 1997. Mm -hmm. Now our guests, who we have brought in to discuss this record, they may disagree with me. They might hold the popular view that this is not a sophomore slump, or they might fall on my side. We'll see. But we've got a nice group of people here who have been with us before. They've come back to talk about Veruca Salt's 1997 album Eight Arms to Hold You. Joining us from right here. In Columbus, Ohio. The proprietor of the best thing going in Ohio. KidsInterviewBands.com, Mr. Chip Midnight. Welcome back, Chip. Good evening. Good evening, sir. From the great state of Florida, where I was just a vacationer not too long ago. It was perfectly uh, temperatured there at about 78 degrees. And uh, he is the man who runs rocketfuelpodcast.com and the podcast that goes along with it, Mr. Jeff Takis. Jeff, welcome.
3: Thanks, and uh, thanks for coming to visit and for your uh, tax revenue there.
1: <laughs> we did spend, I spent quite a bit at the flea market in uh, Fort Myers, picked up uh, a couple of Kiss records and a Cinderella record, so that was a, a good venture out there. And I, I was looking at some of the high-powered weapons that were available, but I decided to pass that they'd be flying southwest on the way home, and I didn't think they'd appreciate me buying a bazooka down in Florida. So uh, I did not do so. Awesome. Speaking let's of, keep all the bazookas in Florida. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of bazookas, let's talk about Chicago, the uh, the hell that's raining down upon them, according to our previous uh, uh, roundtable guests who uh, took it upon themselves to take a, take a bit of a dump on your city, James. When uh, they go low, we go high. That's uh, That's right. Senior editor of The Chicagoist, tankboy.us, new website, a URL there, Jim Coppany, welcome. Howdy, honey. For those of you who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, go back to our previous episode on the LA uh, Roundtable of the 90s, and you'll hear some some folks from LA uh, dropping some shade on uh, on the city of Chicago at the beginning of that episode. It's okay. Chicago's tough. They can take it. Yeah. Speaking of Chicago, the band that we're talking about, they're from Chicago, Rook so, Salt album came out in 1997, Eight Arms to Hold You. A little bit of backstory. The album was produced by Bob Rock, who is the producer of a few bands you might have heard of, such as Metallica and Motley Crue. This was the follow-up to American Thighs, which spawned three singles, most famously Seether uh, also, Number One Blind and All Hell Me were charting singles from that record. And then there was an EP in between, which was, is it Blow It Out Your Ass? Uh, is that the name of the EP, I believe? And that was produced by Steve Albini. Let's get into this record. I had some questions. I threw them out to everybody. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around the room. I'm going to ask each of you these questions, or we're going to figure out if this is a sophomore slump or if this is redeemable record. Jeff, I'm going to start with you. Tell me about your history with this record. When did you first get it? Did you get it when it came out? Later? And what did you think of it?
3: Yeah, I did not get it when uh, it came out. Veruca um, Assault was on my radar screen, but not a band that I um, really uh, cared enough about uh, back when the record came out in 1997. It was probably been about 10 or 12 years ago when I uh, got uh, this record. And um, I really enjoyed it. It's, it, um, I, I know we'll talk about it In depth later but um i uh i really enjoyed uh this record and in fact i i like it better than american thighs and i know that may be an unpopular opinion but um Mm. i really uh uh really like the the record from beginning to end it's um it's got some great songs i know we'll talk about the singles or lack thereof uh, on this record but um i think there are some songs on the album that could have been singles and it also is um the only uh, album that I know of that I listen to that will make me shout out the words lip gloss. So uh, there's that.
1: <laughs> Jim, same questions to you. Um,
0: yeah. So I actually did buy it the day it came out. I was a huge fan of the band at the time. Um, obviously since they were from Chicago and I'm in Chicago, mm-hmm. they were kind of tied into the scene. They were all over the place. I think the reason this might be viewed as a sophomore slump, especially by people who were fans of the band at the time and maybe people that experienced them in that period is because based on singles and the blow it out your asses for rick assault people were kind of expecting something slightly different even though in retrospect they probably shouldn't have because it was pretty clear that the band really did want to swing for the for the outfield for the rafters hit a home run and just do a big glossy rock album and i think it's aged better than than i remember it feeling at the time at the time i do remember being let down primarily because of the fact that it felt a little inconsistent and sometimes felt like there was a bit too much sheen thrown on. Mm-hmm. And I still think that maybe the, the second half of the album is largely, you know, drags a little bit too much and some of the songs on there probably could have been cut. You, you didn't necessarily need to be 14 songs long. Mm-hmm. Um, if they'd gone at 12, I think it probably been, would have been a more successful album. But I think that's probably why people view it as a slump, just based on the time what people were expecting from the band and I mean they had a lot of buzz around them I mean American Thighs did amazing Mm -hmm. so and and, and they also basically you know American Thighs was super indie recording with Steve Albini was pretty indie and then all of a sudden they switch around and they're recording in Hawaii with Bob Rock so I think that's that's one reason why it had it had kind of weird expectations going into it which I don't think in in hindsight was completely fair
1: Chip did I'm gonna guess you bought this when it came out am I correct
4: you are correct. Not, I bought it when it came out, but um, uh, I'm putting air quotes around this. As an esteemed member of the press, I was able to get <laughs> an advanced copy of it. So um, I'm sure, you know, back in those days, I think we had email. I don't know. I don't remember. But either email or calling Geffen every day to ask him when I could get a, a, a first listen to that record. So um, I definitely had an advanced copy of it, which I still have, you know, with no artwork or anything. But, yeah, I also bought it the day it came out because... That's the kind of fan I am excellent and I love and I loved it. I mean, a band who uh named their first record after an DC lyric reference, right, and mm-hmm. then get Bob rock to produce it. I mean, obviously what 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 why wouldn't I love it right?
1: <laughs> sure. Jay
2: uh I knew the single, I knew the band but I did not buy the record. So really this was the first to prepare for the shows. The most time I've spent with it outside of the singles.
1: Uh, I guess in terms of my personal uh, experience with this, I'm in the gym camp. I bought it right when it came out. Cause I was a huge fan of uh, American thighs. Uh, I listened to that record a lot and I was excited by the lead single. Uh, I thought it, at the time um fit within the sound of the band in terms of being a tight three some three minute and something second uh radio single now one of the things that threw me at the time and i don't know if you guys had a chance to go back i, I should have mentioned this in the questions but do you guys remember the videos for seether versus volcano girls um because I went back and rewatched those, and it's pretty astounding how rough and um, cheap-looking see there is in comparison to how glossy and produced, and I think that that's like a strong uh, comparison to the albums. Um, did you guys, just any of you, go back and, and get a chance to watch the videos for these songs? I didn't know. Okay. You guys I mean, remember... Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah, I, I think that goes back to what I was kind of saying, is that they started off as like a scrappy indie band. Yeah, and Volcano Girls was an over-the-top, um, you know, totally huge production. Which, you know, the funny thing is, it was kind of abridged, if I remember correctly. They were in a pavement video in between those two, where they actually yeah. posed as the band Pavement. Um, so it was kind of like, again, it's kind of like watching them take those those steps from the indie world into the more mainstream world, you know, it was just it was weird
1: yeah I think that's what I reacted to at the time which was it was like oh these this is a, a band that's like going for the big rock sound and then also the image as well because they were no longer wearing like t-shirts and thrift store clothes it was like they're on harnesses jumping in the air and dressed like uh they're in some and, and the guys in the band got their hair cut which I you know, with Bob Rock, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe Bob Rock is is sort of the uh, George Steinbrenner of of rock. He makes all the bands get haircuts. Because so uh, <laughs> uh, they're all the, the two guys in the band had long hair in the first video, and then they're uh, in the seether video, and then they're uh, short hair. It's, I think they're. Is it Jim that's the bass player? Uh, Steve. Steve, he's got like a suit on in the video. It's very odd when you compare it to the first one. So going back. Uh, For those of you, you know, Jay, you said that you had not revisited or had not listened to the record up until now. For those of you who were familiar with the record already, like when I went back now and listened to it, I guess the difference in the recording doesn't make as big a difference to me in terms of it sounding huge in the guitar department um, as compared to the first record. Um, What I noticed is I didn't feel like some of the songs were as strong and Jim sort of touched or yeah, Jim sort of touched on this earlier, like the back half of the record to me really seems to, to drag quite a bit in terms of I mean, maybe if it had been 10 songs or 12 songs, that wouldn't have bothered me. But it seemed like that continuous heavy guitar sound just sort of wore on me by the time I got to songs like 10, 11, 12. Did any of you guys encounter that issue? Uh, Chip, when you revisited, did you have any issues with, say, the production or, or the how long the album is?
4: Uh, not at all. <laughs> um, you know, uh, straight and stone pace had been, um, sides from the first record. Okay. So I think that they had the chance to, um, kind of record those in a, in a bigger studio with, uh, with Bob rock. So I, I think that's probably why they included them. Um, they could have left those two off and that might've made that sh- the record a little bit shorter.
0: You know, the yeah, funny thing is, on and, and, the funny thing is I actually really like straight and, um, there was a promo single that Minty Fresh put out, and this might be what you're talking about, when they released a version yeah. that was um, recorded at a Vale for the BBC, and hearing them play it live, it just sounds so much more massive and rockin' than the Bob Rock version, which is kind of yes. strange, because on almost every other song, like Bob Rock added muscle, and that one is one where it felt like he stripped it away. So I, I kind of yeah. would have loved to have seen what this album would have sounded like had it been more of that sound, or even if they'd kept Steve Albini, it would have been a more interesting album, if there maybe would have been a little bit more variance, instead of that, that weird heavy guitar drone near the end.
4: Jim, maybe, maybe you know this. Um, I mean, I feel, you know, I was kind of on the little bit of the outskirts, the outer bubble of this, but um, I think for every Liz Fair and Breeders and Pixies record that Louise and Nina owned, they own an Ario Speedwagon record, a Journey record, uh, Metallica record, an ACDC record. So I think, I don't know if this was all in the game plan to make a record that sounded like this, but it, I think based on just a little bit I know about like their background and what they listened to growing up, like, this feels like the right record to me.
0: Oh, I, I definitely think that that this was an intentional record. I think that this is the record they wanted to make. They did want something that sounded super huge and, if not 80s, kind of have that, that big rock sound. Um, and you're right. I mean, Chicago is a town that, yeah, you yeah. know, we, we have Naked Reagan. We love our punk rock, but we also love our, like, big classic rock and our power pop and all of that stuff put together. And nobody here is really shy about that. Right.
2: I think the the production was for me, um, and I'm 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 a Bob Rock fan. I like well, I like some of the stuff he's done. So in some ways, I struggled with it though because for this band, I think what makes them unique is the vocal. So with all of that low end, uh, there's a the bass on this is really heavy. Oh, there's a lot of bass. It's not just guitar that you're hearing. That's not what, you know, part of what makes that sound big is the bass is so loud in this in this album. Um, the drums sound like they're right off that Motley Crue record that Bob Rock did with them, like same setup. I bet it used the same techniques. So for this band though, I think it's a bit of a barrier at first to get to what they do well, which is the, the vocal melodies and harmonies. So I found myself liking this record the more I listened to it because I could get, um, I want to say get past the production because I got to a point where like maybe my fifth, sixth listen or so. I started to be able to grab onto the melody and then the production, just it was layers. You know, I could kind of appreciate it as, 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 as you know, kind of layers to an onion that you're getting through. And, and once I sort of got to that point, then it all started to make more sense to me. But I have to say, my first listener to it did feel like just big, giant, drony guitars for 14 songs. Um, and it really took me a while to, to, to get deep inside the record and, and kind of understand the, the songs better.
4: I did. I just did a, a quick Google while you guys were talking. Um, and I, I, I forgot the date, but um, that's what I was looking up, but they did that thing. And um, was it Iceland for Molson? Like they went up there with some contest you could win. It was them whole and Metallica. And I, I kind of remember that that's kind of maybe how they ended up working with Bob rock is that they really loved the sound Metallica had, and they decided they wanted to work with Bob Rock because of that. Mm, makes sense.
1: I mean, it's an interesting choice. He, I mean, if you if you want that big, heavy, but radio-friendly guitar sound, which he obviously brought to Metallica's "Doctor Feel Good" and and Metallica's Black album, and then with the later albums in the '90s, I mean, he's the right guy to go to. Um, but like, I think what Jay hit on, I kind of agree with. I feel like the there was heavy songs on the first record all hail me is is a heavy song but they managed to do that with the vocals intact which is i mean the key to this band is the vocals and the harmonies between louise and nina i didn't feel like they had as they didn't play as big a part in this record as i would have liked them to um it seemed think- like they sang off of each other more than together
0: I think it might be that on some of those those slower songs um, there's not as much vocal variation. Like for instance, you have something like Benjamin which is right in the middle of the album which is kind of which is kind of a drag. It's kind of meh. And then yeah. it's cu- followed by Shutterbug which is kind of a slow burner, kind of builds. I think it's probably aged a little bit better than I remember it. But then all of a sudden you leap into something like The Morning Sad which is basically it sounds like The Bangles. And and yeah. all of a sudden all of a sudden the vocals make sense and they're playing off of each other and the melodies are terrific. And then there's like Sound of a Bell, which is also super playful. And then all of a sudden you're back at a lowliness is worse, which is, again, you know, just a drag. And it's kind of like, I think it's on the heavy, slow guitar songs. Their vocals are more monotonous. And I think that's why it doesn't feel quite as um, bracing as the stuff where they're actually playing off of each other.
4: I don't want to get too far ahead. I'm sure we'll touch on this later. But I think this also set the blueprint for post-Eight Arms albums that, that both Nina and Louise put out I think the you can hear that Nina like to, what Jim just said is kind of got that pop bangles-ish kind of sound and I think that carried over to her her solo records and some of the stuff Louise wrote on this some of the heavier stuff I think carried over to um, post Nina Baruch assault records
1: yeah and there's also you know those separating those two is and I, we don't know the reasons why because I'm I, Maybe Jim does because he's in Chicago and he has insider information. But there's just that stuff about it being acrimonious. I mean, when how soon is it after this comes out in '97? Uh, when is it February '97? And then by '98, Nina's out of the band, right? Right.
0: Was Didn't it- they do part of a tour or most of a tour, and then she then she decided that she wanted to leave? I think they toured. I
4: I, I saw them open up for Bush, and so they jumped from from you know. Columbus people will know the Newport Music Hall, which holds I think 1,800 um, as a headliner. But but then they went out with Bush and were playing basketball arenas for yeah, this. I record. think
0: that I think I think that was that was Nina's last tour. Yeah.
1: So I mean it's I mean obviously there was something going on uh, unless that happened really fast in terms of the them dissolving.
4: I think part of it, and um, this is purely speculation, but even as we talk about how their music jumped from like this in the t-shirt and jeans rock to arena rock i think for any band that goes through that quick of a of a jump and all the attention you start getting really fast after that i i imagine that played a lot into the breakup i I think they they went from being the chicago kids to being international rock stars and i'm
2: sure uh, there were probably some pressures around all that stuff. Don't you guys think that the, um, the playing on this record sounds a lot more sophisticated? I don't know. I I don't know if you you maybe don't necessarily like it as much. I can see that, you know, preferring sort of the more rougher sound of the first record in terms of performance. But to me, this sounds like a band that's matured quite a bit as well. I mean, set the production Mm -hmm. aside just in terms of like, Um, the, how the guitar riffs are structured, some of the songs that, you know, have, um, layers to them and, and, and parts that are, you know, kind of build on top of each other. Um, the drumming is a lot more fuller and competent on this record than I think the first one, which sounds a little thin and, you know, a little garage rocky at times. Am am I alone on that?
3: No, you're not alone, Jay. I agree uh, with you. To me, this is, uh, a pretty natural progression of a sound to me, um, compared to the first record. Like it seems like they just, you know, were playing together that much longer and writing together that much longer. And uh, you know, obviously, again, as you said, production aside, like I, I agree. This seems like a a natural progression with a lot of the songs and the playing on it.
2: Am I hearing it right too that um, Jeff and I are relatively new to? the full record and we're i think on the same page of i feel it's pretty strong all the way through but the other three of <laughs> you guys who bought it when it came out are uh, on the other side of that like finding the flaws in it and and not or it's not nope. the way that you feel I mean, about it okay now I, I love it. Uh, i would i would have taken bonds
1: i'll i'll say that i've grown it's grown on me over the years and, and reevaluating it now, getting a chance to listen to it after having put it down for quite a while. Um, I find more right with it than I did. I, I really disliked it when it came out. I, I thought the first single was okay. I was also a little put off that they referenced their own song in Volcano <laughs> Girls. Um, it's a little weird. I understand it's a Beatles riff and that the album title is a Beatles riff and that's fine. Um it's weird thinking back on it now that this band was so referential to other bands like the fact that American thighs is obviously an ACDC you know throwback and um, they didn't have a problem with that being sort of you know playful in a time when being playful wasn't necessarily cool um, I guess I should have appreciated that more at the time but listening to it now like there are songs that maybe didn't connect with me then like i I really like now like third track don't make me prove it i think it's a really cool guitar riff and i think it's a cool vocal that um is going on in that song that maybe i didn't appreciate the first time around but that's a good indication like that guitar riff is way more advanced than like anything that's going on in the first record the first record is pretty much just like power chords and nothing is really approaching some of the more advanced guitar riffing that's Going on here and
2: please
0: cease me. I know what I need plan B some security some security.
1: I don't even think that the EP had that at level advancement. So I'm wondering if, you know, being in a studio with Bob Rock, if he really pushed them. I don't know how much of this was written ahead of time and how much was written in the studio um, in terms of... It just says it was recorded in June of 96 on their Wikipedia page. So I don't know if that's, you know, that's the recording time or if they spent pre-production time with him or or whatnot. So...
2: And he, I mean, he tends to be... Uh, a guy that breaks bands down too. So oh, yeah. if he, he broke down Metallica, I'm sure I'm pretty positive he would have broke this band down too, um, which it's interesting. I would. Lo- I don't know. Has anybody ever heard any demos? I guess um, a couple of these songs were b from the previous record. Can you hear like a, an evolution in the playing and the sophistication and the complexity or the, I guess the overall tightness of the band?
0: Well, I think it's I think it's already all there. and I think that um, we already sort of touched upon this earlier in the conversation is that at this point, you know, they were they were breaking through. They were playing out live a lot. They were practicing a lot. and I think they they were just becoming a tighter band. And you know, once you once you start you write those first couple songs that have bar chords and you're just kind of like rocking out, then you get curious and you start to try to figure out how to do things that are more intricate and, you know, do new things with you guitar and i think that's i think that is what the band was doing and i think it was a natural progression i think bob rock probably helped them hone it but i think the majority of the credit probably just has to do with their natural evolution
1: yeah they were they were pretty young when that first album broke right i mean what were they uh just in their had, like mid-20s yeah and had they been in? I don't know the history. Maybe some of you guys can fill in the blanks. But were they in bands prior to this, or was this like the first band that they were all in?
4: This is the first know? one. Yeah, it was the first one. I, I, I was wondering about that, and um, um I think I, I think what I read is that they that they met, they started working on stuff, recording stuff, and that they were working for about a year, year and a half, for American Thighs. So um, as far as I know, none of them had played in any other bands.
0: No, and it was like it was Art. just Nina and Louise at first, just kind of yeah. singing together. Yep. If you want to feel old,
1: I know we all feel old already, but um,
0: we're, we're we're dissecting albums from the mid '90s. Of course, right. we all, we're all old. Sure. <laughs> so if you want
1: to feel old, Louise is fifty, and uh, Nina is forty-nine.
0: They do they do not look fifty and forty-nine. They don't.
1: They don't rock like fifty-year-olds.
0: No, no. I mean, it's, their last Ghost album was,
1: Notes is a pretty damn good record. Yeah.
0: I think it's their. I think it's. I think Ghost Notes is probably their second best album. Period. It might be their best. American Thighs is, is kind of aged a little on wobbly legs.
1: Yeah, but it did score three singles that that charted, and this one only. It's really Volcano Girls, and that's it. So I want to actually want to get into that. Um, why do you guys think that no other Singles from this record had any significant impact? I mean, none of them like got into like the top two hundred on the modern rock charts or anything like that. Like no no hitters, and outside of Volcano Girls, is, is it? Let well, me just throw that there. What do you guys think is the reason behind that
0: timing? Well, I'm looking at this and the other singles that like even charted were Shutterbug and Benjamin, which aren't exactly singles. I mean, yeah. those are both two of the heavier songs on the album, which Maybe because it was '97 and we're starting to hit that rap rock era, the label was hedging their bets and figuring that we shouldn't do something poppy like "Awesome" or yeah,
1: why would don't awesome make me prove symbol?
0: it? It, it might have just been what they thought was going to play on, was going to was going to cater to the modern rock radio at the time, since everything was kind of going south. <laughs> were,
2: were we started getting were, uh, were we starting to get into the um, reemergence of the power batted ballad cloaked as alternative slow song? at this time because some I mean, some of these songs are like benjamin and loneliness is worse i mean if you broke them down they're they're pretty much power ballads you right? mean like Brick Blum- um, by ben
0: folds and
2: yeah lightning like, crash and then we start to get into creed and all that yeah, stuff then, then, then,
0: then we're in arms wide open territory
2: right, right. like we we kind of slowly started to get there and then at some point i remember just thinking like these are power ballads like we we're back we're full circle like it's over
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, they would, have been, they, they would have been great teen movie soundtrack inclusions, but I'm not so sure they were great ideas to release as singles.
2: Yeah, they didn't pick the pop songs, which is right. interesting.
0: Morning yeah, Sad would have, been, I
2: know. would have been awesome. I think
0: Shutterbug is a great song,
2: though. I like that song a lot. I, I, like I said, I, I don't dislike any of the songs on the record. It's just not a single.
0: Right. Shutterbug's a great yeah. slow burn, but I, I don't think it's the kind of thing that I, I, I walk around humming to myself. Yeah, that's the thing that
3: frustrates me the most about this record is the the singles that were chosen as singles. I think they were just wrong choices. Um, I think Awesome would have been a great follow-up to Volcano Girls uh, as a single. Um, I like Shutterbug as a song too. I think that would have been a cool follow-up after that. And I also like the song with David Bowie. I think that would have been a yeah. fun single. They could have had a fun video with. Yeah. Um, to me, I think this record just didn't do as well commercially because I think they chose the wrong singles.
2: With, with David Bowie's a very um, radio friendly lyric too. Yeah. Radio at that time loved lyrics like you know that were relatable and pop culture referential and you know a little quirky and just distinguish themselves and that that totally fit into that category.
1: Yeah, and and regarding the commercial aspect, I don't even know that this did any worse than um, American Thighs because there's not really good information. I know that American Thighs went platinum, which is five hundred thousand. I'm assuming this went at least platinum just because of the fact that it had a big single and um, it did chart in the Billboard 200 album chart. Not only in the United States, but it also charted in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK at, at relatively good numbers, but that's about it. There's very loose information in terms of how these albums actually, I wish there was some sort of database that told you like up to the minute, how many albums have been sold for albums. Uh, maybe that's some sort of insider mm-hmm. thing that we don't have access to, but it seems with barcodes, you could probably have an updated daily list of what's being sold. Uh, Cause of sound scan. Right. But uh,
0: that's, that uh, doesn't seem to happen. Uh, I'm, look, I'm pretty look sure that the billboard site and it's showing that eight arms a whole, you actually charted higher than American thighs which isn't, which isn't unusual.
1: Yeah, but it's, but it's somehow, well, I think the, the, my thinking in terms of also including it in the, in the, I'll say critical reevaluation is what we're doing here. Uh, is that it, it did not do well as well critically, I think, Um for example, Rolling Stone gave this album one and a half stars,
0: which for Rolling Stone is super unusual, uh, <laughs> considering they, they're big fans of everything. Is like three and a half stars means you never have to say you're sorry,
4: right? And they, they is that. Well, you say chip. Well, I was, was going to ask if that reviews online. Like, what did they? What would
0: do you know?
4: What their what their issue with it was?
1: Um, you have to use the Wayback Machine, but you can access uh, that review.
4: The problem is we still don't know who Veruca Salt are. Borrowing from others is a Veruca Salt pastime. They nicked the first album's title from ACDC. Now they've grabbed the original working title of the Beatles' Help album for their second LP. Or from the Beatles' film, Help for the second LP. These acts of rock and roll faith might seem more charitable and less calculated if the band's music could silence its critics. However, it is an uninspired offering.
0: So, and the funny thing is, like, Rolling Stone panned but Entertainment Weekly, Spin, and M.E. all gave it really good reviews. Hmm. So it's not like it was critically panned. I think it was just, I mean, again, like I said, given context at the time and the fans at the time, it wasn't exactly what people were expecting. Mm -hmm. Some of the album felt like it was maybe not as well thought out or a little more monotonous than we expected. And um, I think the label didn't work it right. And at that, at this time, this is still when label involvement is super important, and, and getting pushing it to the radio was everything to a band. And I think that they probably dropped the ball.
2: That that Rolling Stone comment is interesting because one of the things I thought about uh, listening to this record was, in hindsight, that nobody else sounds like this. Like, there's no other bands with a with a very like you know very feminine female vocal. Um, that is this melodic and has the harmonies that is this heavy. You know, I can think of bands that are heavy like this, but the vocal is not as strong as these are. And I can think of bands that have vocals this strong but aren't as heavy as this band is. So it's kind of funny in hindsight. they're, They're picking on them for, I guess, not being unique, but I can't think of any other bands that sound like them. And I feel like there's a whole generation of bands now
4: that were influenced by this record. I mean, like Speed Ortiz. Um, maybe Speed Ortiz is a little bit more American Americanized, but I know um,
0: Charlie Blues. I've,
4: I've, yeah. yeah, Charlie Blues for sure.
0: Uh,
1: what was there? There was a band. Was it what they called Bully? Like, oh yeah, a yeah, couple bully. years ago. That band reminded me a lot of this, like yeah. Rook Assault, mid '90s Rook Assault they're somewhere in between this and, and yeah, American see, size.
0: seeing them is like, um, watching bleach era and Nevada fronted by a woman who's channeling a really killer pop sensibility. It's, it's, it's yeah. kind of a kind of causes your head to spin a little bit in a really good way. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I love I'm, that
3: about this band. I love that. Like you have a song like awesome. That could be really just like kind of a basic power pop vibe, but then have heavier songs, you know, like Shutterbug and others, like I like I just love that band. I agree with Jay that they're totally unique, and and uh, I think uh, yeah, I think there's no one out there like them. And and yeah, we're hearing the kind of the reverberations of bands now that have influences from this band, and that's that's really cool to see because those are some great bands that were mentioned.
2: Sound of the Bell is another track that I really like on the song. It has this, it has that heavy drum bass sound that the rest of the record has, but it has this dreamy guitar part over top of it that... I don't know. I, I think the the second half of the record, it, it's not as strong from a pop sensibility standpoint, but there's some shifts and turns there that, I don't know, they're, they're a little bit un- unexpected and keep it interesting. And I, I've been crit- as critical as anybody of a lot of the records we've reviewed that go beyond 12 songs. Um, so, I, I sure, if you want to take two off, I'd be all for it, but it didn't... I was surprised. Maybe because it's only still only like 50 minutes that's not too bad for 14 songs
0: I feel like we've
2: when you get into that territory we, we, we listen, we've done records that are much longer in terms of overall song length but
0: right I mean at least they didn't push that 69 minute yeah. 70 minute Red Hot Chili Peppers let's put every single <laughs> oh, burp that we did in the practice space somewhere on the album so that we have a completely chock full CD
2: with a hidden track
0: yeah <laughs> But, well, you That's know, just they, bici- it's just bicycle chains clanking <laughs> up, up, up through the up through
4: this record. I mean, up until the end of this whole eight arm cycle, um, I mean, they were import singles. I I think I bought all of them and they had a bunch of additional songs they could have put on this record. Hmm. Like all the CD singles came with like two or three additional songs. So there's like almost like a whole there's almost a whole another it could have been a double album there's there's enough music for a double album
0: totally like I would have been happy to hear they did a great cover of sex pistols bodies that would have been great on this album like right near the end yeah
4: huh
1: now I gotta look that up on discogs to see if I can uh,
0: score that single <laughs> Here's it's a, a <laughs> it's minty fresh it's on that label I think it's minty fresh number nine it's a seven inch yeah
4: and that came out with was that that might have been the All Hail Me on the All Hail Me single maybe i can I know, see it in my they, head they covered them they cover
1: My Sharona on
0: one of the singles which is actually also a pretty good cover hmm. i i do i remember when that cover actually came out it was right around this time period and Q101 played the hell out of it it was on like 17 times a day
1: uh bodies is on the number 1 blind single
0: right oh yeah yeah
1: and then I forgot about Victrola. That was another good single off the first record. It would, I don't think it charted like uh, number one blind and the other ones did, but uh, that was a, that was a good song as well.
4: Um, so the one thought, the one song we haven't, nobody's mentioned yet is um, Venus Mantrap, And like, so I actually found, I wrote a review for this, for that magazine I wrote for called Moo. And, um, and I actually still feel the same way about that song today. Like, it sounds the intro to Venus Mantrap sounds like a Marilyn Manson song to me. You guys know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, guitar Duh- guitar na-
2: na- 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 Yeah, yeah. really epic, kind of dramatic yeah. fast, kind of pounding thing, yeah. But I feel like, I mean, yeah, this this album is, it's big sounding, there's a lot, you know, there's reverb, there's, it's it's definitely got that Bob Rock sound, but I do feel like there's still a um in the guitars and maybe the bass tone, it still sounds very, I don't know, kind of gnarly and raw. Like some of the, some of his bands, say Metallic, for example, like, it sounds heavy, but You know, the guitars at some point almost sound like synthesizers. They're so perfect. And I feel like in this record, there is still some rawness there and an ugliness to it that for me at least helps balance it so it doesn't get too much of a sheen um, compared to some other Bob Rock stuff. It's not as raw as as the first record, but.
1: No, and I think in terms of the rawness, I mean, the, the guitars are pretty heavy on that first record. They're maybe not as compressed as much and as thick on this record. I think maybe, I think what he really beefed up was the rhythm section, like you mentioned, Jay, with the bass and the drums. I mean, that's where like the huge differences in fidelity wise between the first and the second record. And correct me if I'm wrong, the the first record was essentially made for an indie record, and then they're like, EP or something got picked up was it so Minty Fresh puts out the first record but then it got picked up by um Gaffin Gaffin, DGC, and then is it re-released just as it is or would they do any sort of adjustments to it anybody know they just
0: released it as they just released it as it was it was still yeah the Bradwood production
1: okay I mean that's really just that's an indie recording when you you know get down to it
0: I mean, Brad, Brad Wood, I mean, you've, you've heard his work with, like, Liz Fair, and a bunch of other people. He obviously has a much lighter touch, and I think that's why the first album sounds a little more lo fi a little scrappier. I'm not so sure it sounds heavier. I mean, I think that I think Bob Rock did bring the rock side of Baruch Assault more out, obviously. Yeah.
4: Again, I'm just, I'm, I'm just uh, imagining all these scenarios in my head, but when they go in with Brad Wood... They're probably referencing stuff he's worked on. They're probably talking about Liz Fair stuff and breeders and I know that Brad didn't work on breeder stuff, but um when you go sit down with Bob Brock, then Bob Brock starts throwing out the bands he's worked with and, and you probably try to, to match up to that.
0: Sure. Oh well, I'm sure they sat down with him and were just like fuck you. Yeah. That's yeah. what we want to sound like.
2: Yeah. I will say this record is um Sound it's a different experience in different places you listen to it. So when I first listened to it the first couple of times, I was listening to it in my car, which has a sub and it definitely gets muddy. Then I listened to it in headphones and in regular, like kind of just monitor speakers, and it made much more sense. Like the low end gets a little out of control, like on a modern system that's got some pretty good bass, it starts to swallow up the vocal even more. So it's definitely not a record that I don't think was uh, could, could, could use a, a remaster or a, even a remix to, to, to get rid of some of the muddiness, um, depending on what you're listening to it in.
1: Hmm. I don't have as kick-ass a stereo system as you.
2: I mean, right. listen to anything that has a subwoofer, like a home theater system that has a subwoofer, anything, and it starts to get pretty crazy. <laughs> like Because the bass on this record is
0: cranked. Um, Well, I like to sit on a subwoofer when I'm listening to stuff using my earbuds. (laughs) It just really does bring a new experience to the music. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, that sounds like a fun Sunday night. Uh, Let's give our, I guess, overall impressions in terms of, I feel like I know how this is going to come down, but uh, (laughs) let's talk about whether we believe that this um, me designating it as a sophomore slump is really a valid or apt description or whether you believe that this is a, uh, a I don't want to say a worthy record but just that uh, the sophomore slump is is not a valid a uh, application for this record and we should move along and simply refer to it as the sophomore of Ruca Salt album controversial may it be uh, this is not a sophomore slump, so I'm just gonna go around. i'm gonna start with you, Jeff. Yes or no, sophomore slump
3: no i uh you know again, it may not have met expectations commercially, but I think as a record, I think it's a it's a great one and uh is is a great you know kind of again next step
0: from American thighs
1: Jim yourself.
0: I'm, I'm going to stick with, I think at the time, it was viewed as a sophomore slump. I think it is a record that history has treated much more kindly and has probably validated the fact that it's a stronger album than it was given credit for at the time. It's definitely. It definitely has, has aged well, which I don't think you can say for the majority of albums released in that time period.
1: That is a safe assumption, I think.
0: <laughs> Chip.
4: Definitely not a sophomore slump. And... I, I kind of consider, I mean, because after this they broke up, that Ghost Notes is kind of like the third album, and I think that it's a it's a really nice nice path, albeit uh, you know, 18-year uh, break between second and third official records for a full Bruc Assault lineup. But um, I, I feel like Ghost Notes piggybacked off of Eight Arm and kind of progressed from that sound. So
2: um, yeah, definitely not a slump in my mind. Jay? Well, some of this is all based on expectations. So, I mean, the success of the first record set expectations that maybe this band could just never live up to wasn't realistic. So from that aspect, maybe that's where you can make the argument that it's a sophomore slump. But um, I, I liked the rec- I, I enjoyed the record quite a bit, and I'm kicking myself for not uh, investing in it earlier. I mean, it has all the things I like. I don't know what I was... <laughs> <laughs> what I was waiting for, I think maybe all the hype around the band at the time kind of turned me off, and I just ignored them, but uh I was I, I enjoyed it a lot.
1: Well, you were pretty hip at the time, so this was a little too commercial for you. If I remember.
2: <sighs> Something like that
1: yeah uh I'm, I'm going to agree with the sentiment sentiments that um, I probably was not pleased with this record. Um, at the time for various reasons that i have come around to it now and i no longer view it as a slump i do still think it's a little too long but that's you know nitpicking at this point uh there's a lot of albums there i would guess that the majority of albums released in the 90s are too long by two or three songs and those could be singles you know b-sides for singles and and whatnot. So, that's a pretty good company to be in. Um, and I think, like you guys, that they maybe missed the mark on which singles that they chose for this record, um, going with some oddball choices instead of some more poppier, obvious choices.
0: Which is something, again, I don't think they had a choice in.
1: No, the label, I'm guessing, was probably... You know, in, in talking to, um, to uh, Jacob Schlichter from Semisonic, when they started pushing certain singles it was like they were no longer pushing them to like alternative college rock radio now they were considering pushing them to like mainstream radio and like adult rock and you have to change the choice of your single based on what format you think you're going to get on and it's all of a sudden becomes this game and they probably were looking at pushing them into a much bigger market than just you know college and alternative rock radio with those singles that's what I'm guessing by choosing um what was it benjamin as being one of the singles i mean that could be fleetwood mac for, you know that's that's a that's a pretty saccharine song so yeah so i'm in agreement with all you guys it's not a sophomore slump everybody who got pissed off on our facebook page you have been uh, appeased
0: and if, the, if if you're if your facebook people want to want to feel validated for for the time period i recommend looking up the march 1997 issue of spin because The person that reviewed the album for Spin at that time was Sarah Vowell, who became famous on This American Life and various other things. So if you know her voice, which is very distinctive, I highly recommend reading the review and imagining her voice in your head because it's both hilarious and kind of spot on.
1: That's awesome. I didn't know that. I'm going to go check that out after the show. All right. There you have it. Our unanimous agreement on redeeming... What was probably not necessary, needing a redemption, but we did it anyways.
0: Right now, Nina and Louise are both shaking their head, going, "We knew it was a fucking good album from the get go. I mean, I don't even know what this episode is doing existing. <laughs>
1: it was so bunch good, of, we, we bunch, broke up. Bunch after. of chumps.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: we decided just to end it afterwards. It was so good. <laughs> not really, but want to remind everybody who is listening, they can go to our uh, i go to our page on iTunes and leave us some positive feedback if they uh, so feel the need to it helps us with our rankings and whatnot in the uh in the itunes department and of course you can visit us at patreon patreon.com forward slash dig me out to become a patreon patron we just gave away our first uh prizes for the uh, first quarter of 2017 we'll have quarterly prizes get ready second quarter is coming up i don't know what it's going to be but it'll be good I don't know somebody will throw us something cool to give away it'll be
0: the entire Baruch salt catalog on vinyl
1: yeah what no <laughs> what are we rich <laughs> it'll be it'll be all the cds i can collect from my local half price books <laughs> with with new cases that's what you'll get you'll get new cases for your Baruch salt cds
0: <laughs> and i hope you all enjoy the sophomore hooting the blowfish album because you're gonna go to <laughs>
1: Oh, is that 97? Is Fairweather Johnson 97? It's got to be right around now. Because we're not doing it. <laughs>
0: we're not.
2: Was that the name of the record? Yeah, Jesus Fairweather Charles. Johnson. Oh, that's the worst album title I've ever heard.
1: Yeah, it's pretty bad. Please go to kidsinterviewbands.com to uh, see what Chip Midnight is up to. You can follow him on Twitter at Chip Midnight and at Kids Interview Bands. Um,. Chip, anybody we need to know about that's coming up?
4: Nothing right now.
1: Okay. Jeff Takis, you're at rocketfuelpodcast.com. On Twitter at rocket underscore fuel. What do you got going on?
3: Well, um, before I talk about new episodes, I just want to set the record straight. Fairweather Johnson came out in 1996. Okay. So, uh, sadly, we we watched the ball go by on that one.
1: 2026, <laughs> we'll get to it.
3: Yeah. Yeah i've got uh some episodes uh in the works um the the podcast uh basically focuses on new music and current music um i've got uh uh, a small artist out of portland called mo troper who just put out um a really great uh record and then right after that i've got um an interview with the feelies so i'm pretty stoked about those and uh looking forward to getting some episodes
1: out cool feelies that's kind of legendary
3: yeah, that was uh that was fun. Just kinda came together real quick and uh recorded it a couple of weeks ago. It was uh it was fun.
1: Those are the best kind that you're like at the last minute or in the last day or so, like just kinda slaps together as opposed to dealing with publicists and managers for weeks on end and yeah.
3: Right. Yeah, you just cast out I call it casting nets. You just cast out a net and Sometimes someone bites and it works out, and it, you, you record it, and it, it's done before you can blink. So,
1: well, we need to do that quickly before people realize who we are and how insignificant this is, and then they go, "Oh, never mind," and then I, then they disappear. I, so, I fight that same battle, Tim. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs>
3: but Jim to, Copen- be, but,
2: but, to be fair, what? I'm pretty sure we're the only '90s podcast that exists still. So true. If you're a, an artist from that decade. You've may- only got
0: one place to go. Maybe
2: <laughs> you might want to think about it because not a lot out there. Jim Copney,
1: we can find you on Twitter at Tankboy. You are at tankboy.us at your brand spanking new URL. .us. Feels- Glad you did not go with the dot, uh, .ru uh, because... <laughs>
0: there's there, there there are some current events i don't need to be trolled up in
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh you're over at the chicagoist and uh doing your thing there as well so uh thank you for joining us and uh anything you need to want to plug any articles coming up
0: uh no i just say visit the the personal site i do a lot of uh previews of bands and track stuff there that uh that eventually sometimes makes its way to Chicagoist, but a lot of the more underground stuff I'm doing on the, on the personal site right now. Chicagoist is where you'll see a lot more of the like national news or Chicago-centric music, arts, culture, news. And I'm also going to be spending the rest of the night watching that video of two cats ringing bells, so that's that's going to be very exciting.
1: Is that better than the one with the two birds and one's rocking out to the Elvis cover and the other one's like back off? It's like apples and oranges. It's two different things. They're
0: both wholly satisfying.
1: Yes. All right. We've just described visual YouTube videos to people that are listening (laughs) on an audio (laughs) podcast, so that's very exciting for them. Uh, That's it, everybody. Our roundtable has completed. We'll be back uh, with another sophomore slump in the uh, latter half of the year. I bet you can't wait to find out what album that's going to be. You can just Google sophomore albums from 1997, and you'll probably figure it out. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll have some episodes coming up, some reviews, some interviews, all that kind of fun stuff. And, uh, that's it for Jay. I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber. Or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.